0: listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim.
1: Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad. Yourself? Good, good. I feel like we've been looking at each other on our webcams pretty much all day today. We did our live stream this morning. Um, so I guess a week ago, by the time people are listening to this, um, we talked about our guest today. I was very excited to get into this DevSecOps arena. Um, but before we go down, down that route, um, I wanted to talk to you about a meeting that we just had and a question that came up. So Um, I recommended to a client that they put together some training on how to use their, uh, their IGA system, right? Because one of the main pieces of feedback we got during our workshops was that, um, you know, people didn't know that they could do certain things in the tool that they could actually do. Right. So capability existed. These folks have been living without it. So recommendation was to um, train people up on that. But that's kind of a, a, that's like a big thing, right? Like, so how do you go about doing that training? Where do you start? How much do you do? What was your thought as we were having that conversation?
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting because my mind immediately went to how much training do you actually need to put out there if the process is good? And I I, I always use an example, but Amazon's like a perfect version of that everyone knows how to spend money on Amazon. I didn't take a class on how to search for things and, and find what I want, add it to a cart and, you know, and buy it. It's just a process and a flow that makes sense and its work and it works. I think in the case of identity, there's clearly going to be some training that needs to be done, but I always would, I would take a step back and just say, okay, how does this actually working? Like, does this make sense? Are we asking stupid questions that we don't need to ask? Does the, is the data on the screen relevant to whatever is is we're trying to get done? You know, the, probably the classic example is like access requests. I need to request access to this thing and it's obscured or obfuscated by some weird IT sounding active directory group name that someone came up with like 20 years ago and has morphed into like, oh, this is the, you know, the access that gives you marketing and admin access on the Azure instance, like okay, that totally makes sense. (laughs) So I like, I I think about it very critically because I think this is like one of my true passions on the identity side is the customer experience. Like if you have to do a lot of training, you got to really rethink is, is the way you're presenting to the customer makes sense. And then once you get to where you think you're comfortable with that, you know, hit it from a bunch of different spots, lunch and learns, videos, documentation. I think people learn different ways, Um, you know, have, have a few options. But I think uh, personally, I would start with, you know, why do we need to do the training in the first place?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, viewpoint. I think um, one of the things that um, the IGA's platform for this particular organization is designed that 100% of the time, you have 100% of the options. And so... I think if they brought people in and said, look, here's the happy path and it's very simple and it's going to work 80% of the time, 20% of the time you might need to go down the path where every option is available, um, that would take care of a lot of the problems.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is a situation where you want to put people on a Rails experience as much as you can. You know, Maybe it's a roller coaster. Hopefully, maybe it's not as exciting, <laughs> at least from an access perspective. But You know there's a defined path. And sometimes having too much control or power over that, or even just choices in general, can really kind of impact the overall service um and the usability of it. Right. We're not I don't I think you're somewhere in between the Borg. And everyone doing the same thing and you know i'm trying to think like who would be more free you know freewheeling like where everybody kind of does whatever we want uh q i guess would be the other one where he just kind of do does whatever he wants so, and yes that's a star star uh star trek next generation reference so that's what i'm thinking right
1: yeah no i mean you know i and i think the the folks at this client had put a lot of effort into written documentation and putting you know notes in red know red block of text and people don't even see it and they're not going to take time to read the document so you're right it has to be easy but then on top of that understanding someone's not going to read a 20 page word doc with a bunch of screenshots maybe a video would work better
0: yeah for sure i know i've done videos in the past when i did a rollout of an access request was here's how to use it did screen share um you know screen recording basically um, I, I definitely got someone else to do the talking part cause <laughs> my voice was not exactly where I wanted it to be. And yet here I am doing a podcast. Um, but I think there's a variety of different ways you can get the information out. You, you'll never solve for everything, have the available options. Um, you could run metrics and see who's using what, uh, you know, I think if you've got like a web hosting and you know, how many hits does a page get, or if you've got a wiki or something like that, you know, how many views, etc. find out what your users want from a training perspective, and then put your focus there rather than trying to figure it out on your own without any input from the folks that you're going to be pushing this onto.
1: Well, I hope our listeners want DevSecOps because that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, for
0: sure. Um, This is a conversation we teased on our live stream this morning, uh, talking about DevSecOps and some of the myths and things like that that go along with it. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I don't think we've actually gotten into this topic uh, at least on the identity side with um you know at least very much over the 134 episodes or so that we've put out already over the last uh over two and a half years uh so yeah we're going to talk DevSecOps and I'd like to introduce our guest today his name is Mike Frazier he's the VP of DevSecOps with Sophos welcome to the show thanks for having me Jeff and Jim yeah thank you so much for joining us and um I, I'm curious to see where this conversation will go. I'm not curious, but interested, because I think there's a lot of different ways that we can kind of get through this. But this is the first time you're with us, so we have tradition around here that we like to understand your origin story. How did you get into the wonderful world of cybersecurity and, by extension, identity and access management? Is it something that, that you chose, or did it choose you?
2: That's a great question. So I, I, I was into computers as a kid, Um, and joined the Air Force when I was 18, but decided because I uh, had such affinity for computers as a teenager that I wanted to do something different. And so I actually worked on weapon systems, like say physical weapon systems on uh, F-15 fighter jets. And then I actually transitioned to the Guard to become a cybersecurity uh, engineer. So I started in cyber uh, very, very early in my career. Uh, But then I because uh, I, I have an entrepreneurial uh, drive, uh, got into uh, starting out in brick-and-mortar uh, computer repair shop, and then I kind of moved through cloud. Uh, was there at the very early days of, of cloud where people were scratching their head going, what, what is this cloud thing? How do, I, how do I even use it? And so I actually started a private cloud company for the SMB. Um, also found that timing was imperative when you're trying to release a product. Um, and hardware is very hard, and so had a couple different consulting companies uh, in cloud and cybersecurity uh, and virtual desktop infrastructure, and then decided to get into uh, workspace as a service, and then finally into uh, what is what, what was refactor, which was the whole reason I'm at Sophos, uh, where we were. I was really trying to solve the issue of bridging the gap between cybersecurity, where I started out my career, going to the other side in the software engineering world and really being able to bridge the gap between cybersecurity and uh, dev or DevOps, um, which was just a huge uh, issue out there and something I really wanted to solve and knew it myself as kind of being in the, the trenches as uh, both a cybersecurity engineer and then coming over to the uh, software engineering world. Uh, and a fun fact, I, uh, I, I went to get my bachelor's and master's degree while starting refactor in computer science because I needed to use my GI Bill uh, benefit from before it expired uh, for my Air Force days. Um, But I also um, really wanted to fully immerse myself into uh, the software uh, engineering slash computer science side of the, the world. So I truly had a good holistic understanding of the problem we were trying to solve. Nothing like an expiration date to uh, spur action
0: in in all (laughs) facets of life. Um, Let's talk a little bit about refactor because I I think it's an interesting um, thing. Let's leave it at that. IT as code. And I think we've been hearing, you know, as code for a long time. And I'd love to hear, you know, what exactly was refactor? Because I think that's how you ended up at Sophos.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I I actually coined the term (laughs) IT as code. I and the whole premise around what we were building at Refactor was the, the around the principle of if if everything becomes code or becomes IT as code, it's not just about app development anymore. We need to look at everything else that we're bring to the cloud as infrastructure as code, configuration as code, policy as code, um, and really try to take the same principles that DevOps was to adding infrastructure as code to agile software development and really create an agile approach to more general purpose automation with security built into it. Um, and I was also tired of seeing, you know, everything in, in our world in cyber are all point solutions. And I wanted to build a platform that could cater to uh, multiple personas so that cybersecurity engineer could upskill and actually be a part of what the DevOps team was doing and vice versa, build something that had the features of functionality. Because most cybersecurity products out there, DevOps... Uh, doesn't want to touch because of the fact that it wasn't built for them. And it's too, in some way, simplistic. Uh, The other way I look at it is kind of opinion, you know, people that want something that's very opinionated versus creating your own opinions. So we had to balance very delicately between both. So we had something that was super flexible, but also you could package it up so that you could basically put out your opinions and somebody could use the automation content um, in a very consumable way.
0: It seems like that ties in pretty well with what we kind of started off the the show today with training and how do you make things usable for a variety of audiences. Um, and now you're working with Sophos as a, as the VP of DevSecOps, which one, very cool title. Two, what the hell does that mean?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so coming on board to, so, so, and it's actually Sophos. It's a, it's My bad. <laughs> uh, no, no, you're fine. It's taken me six months to still try to, uh, be on point with pronouncing it correctly, so all good. Um, but yeah, so I, I so refactor has now become uh, Sofos Factory, uh, which is uh, basically it's the same product, just just rebranded. And uh, I'm driving the DevSecOps strategy, but again, around this kind of holistic thought process of having more general purpose automation to be able to support also the broader ecosystem too. So one of the big pieces that we were driving at. Refactor was I want everything to basically become building blocks that can become from different vendors, um, and this ties nicely into the IAM side because it's a huge issue there. Um, and but more generally, kind of the broader ecosystem because there's a lot of uh, vendors that are trying to figure out how to modernize their approach of the products that they've had in market for a long time, um, and then you have a lot of net new vendors coming into the market that are a little bit more bleeding edge for the typical uh, cybersecurity teams out there as well. Um, And so that's like a huge, uh, huge push on our end. But I I basically lead uh, Sophos Factory uh, product and team um, at Sophos around DevSecOps.
1: So Mike, we, we try to make sure that we don't leave anyone in the dust. And you know, our listener base is really all over the spectrum in terms of background and years of experience. So um like to start off with kind of a 101 around DevSecOps, which to me sounds like part of three different words development, security, and operations, right? I mean, is it that simple?
2: It could be. I think it's a a little bit more uh, there's a little bit more involved explanation to it. But my philosophy on, on DevSecOps is it's more general, uh, so DevSecOps really is about the principles of DevOps and then adding in security to the mix. Um, Also, though, I want to be clear, it's not just AppSec redefined. It's really kind of a new paradigm of, again, this whole concept of IT as code. So if it becomes code and looking at, again, your infrastructure, uh, your configuration, security as code, whether that's policy or, um, you know, developing towards APIs and other things that you're trying to programmatically create so you can have a continuous process to build more modern solutions. And DevSecOps, to your point, is the combination of three different words. And I look at it as a collaborative process between dev or DevOps uh, uh, security and ops because of the fact that really, if you're going to truly achieve DevSecOps in an organization, it's not just we're going to add security to the developer's plate. It's really thinking about this as a more collaborative process. We have so many different domains, uh, including I am inside of uh, cybersecurity that there's no way that you can expect developers to just say, yep, we're going to pick up all things security um, because we're modernizing. That's the approach here. And then on the other side, on the cybersecurity side, I really am passionate about seeing cybersecurity practitioners upskill and redefining the definition of, of developers, too, because it's not just about app development anymore. And so I want to give cybersecurity practitioners and teams not just to seat at the table, but to be actively involved in the process and, as cliché as it may sound, really, truly start breaking down the silos in organizations so that they can all cohesively work and collaborate together.
1: Yeah, when I think of the IT as code, I think about you know automation of the deployment of IT infrastructure applications. I think... There's obviously an IAM tie-in, but could you kind of elaborate on that?
2: Identity is critical to anything that you're going to build. Obviously, you have to be able to uh, tie into various different systems. You have to be able to also have the identity tied into any of the automation that you're trying to do um, inside of these more modern solutions. And I look at the uh, IMP says. A, one of the core building blocks when you're building more of these DevSecOps slash IT as code type of solutions. Because um, at the end of the day, you have to be able to uh, tie in what you're doing into whether it's uh, you know APIs or SSO or whatever it may be uh, from an identity standpoint. You have to be able to, to continuously tie into it too, right? And then looking at other things like zero trust and so on, um, if you want to be able to ensure uh, over time that you're able to uh, uh, get authorization to various different systems too, but it's not uh, necessary depending on what you're doing, but because of the fact that you're tied into so many different systems and everything changes too, right? So if you take the building block approach, um, you may be using one technology today, but uh, you know six months, a year down the road, you may want to change something else or have something in addition to, you really want to... Take a much more modular approach to that. Um, as you're tying into, uh, it's basically building a solution that has many different parts to it, um, and requires uh, identity for each of the different parts inside of the uh, uh, the solution that you're building.
1: Yeah. Whenever I think of IT as code, I'm thinking about like automated uh, deployment of you know the infrastructure and in the application. So you need to have accounts that have the right to do things, you know, to pull from a, a code repo or, you know, initiate a new instance or connect to a database. So there's a lot of accounts that the that ITS code process requires. So is it the management of those? And from an IAM standpoint, are we talking about mostly the authentication process or is it like Lifecycle of those accounts, you know, what all would be in, first? Is my premise correct? And and second, is what are the, you know, what kind of components of IAM? Is it authentication, authorization, um, user lifecycle, things like that?
2: Yeah, that's an that's an interesting question. So I think it's it's all all all, all of all the above. the The issue with trying to figure out how you're building towards the different solutions is, there, is around use cases. Um, so I have some customers that are working to, they want to do onboarding and offboarding of users, and they're gonna tie into multiple different systems to do that, um, and they're gonna, they're gonna use a much more DevSecOps type of approach. Um, then there's the, I need to tie in to particular systems, to your point, whether it's a repo, a code repo, Uh, Or it's, um, I need to author uh, authorization against this API, or I need to be able to, you know, tie into this VM and go set something up or whatever it may be. And so um, there's there's a different piece of identity that's a part of that. And a lot of what drives around DevSecOps is around the concept of CI, CD, continuous integration, continuous deployment. Um, And... The, the problem that exists with that is that you end up giving the keys the kingdom when it comes to that because you're tying into all these different systems and you have to go basically uh, you know, tie together different steps that you're trying to automate in there. Um, and so when you're doing that, you have to be very careful about the level of access and authorization that you're giving um, around uh, who in a lot of these systems, they don't really have any sort of like Privileged access management, other than like, yeah, you can have access to this, or no, you can't. (laughs) And so you're not thinking about the granularity inside of the pipelines you create. um, Even if you have granularity on how you can access to execute said pipelines, and so that's still a problem that exists out there in the space, and something that I'm working towards trying to help uh, uh, solve for because of the fact that it's it's a it's a it's a it's a problem out there. And if you're to your point, trying to get into uh, more of this devsecops where you're incorporating other things outside of just traditional app dev you really have to think about uh, how you're structuring uh, the identity piece uh, to all of this and h- how that ties into the automation and the continuous automation of that as well so that you can uh, also be able to have an understanding and, and be able to also audit like who's doing what where when and how right
1: yeah I mean, when I when I speak with clients a lot, they're trying to get their arms around um, this whole DevSecOps process or um, DevSec anyway, they might not have the operation side down. In other words, the developers are solving the problem because they have the problem and they need to solve it in order to move forward. So they kind of define their processes and everything. But even at a more fundamental level, just wondering, you know, when does an organization need to kind of build a capability around DevSecOps? Is it like, you know, how how large they get? Is it only certain types of companies or what do you, you know, in other words, who needs DevSecOps?
2: I think every every organization needs DevSecOps. Um, the conundrum though is, is kind of where you were probing with the question, which is the size of the company uh, and the maturity of different teams in the company. Um, so, the larger the organization, the more likely they have different teams that are dedicated to supporting the different pieces of the DevSecOps side. Um, again, I I don't look at this as just trying to add particular tools into your just your DevOps, you know, an app dev process. I think about it more holistically. Um, and so, if if you take that approach to the what DevSecOps is then you're really thinking about how do I incorporate this type of approach as I'm modernizing? um, And also, how do I think about the uh, ways that different teams can support what they've created? And so that takes a certain type of skill set to be able to build. I I often equate this also in the software engineering world to software engineers are creative people. They can build stuff from scratch. Developers if you're just generalizing the term, app developers have to have code that they start from, but they can then add additional functionality to it. And I take that same thought process to what DevSecOps is. You have those that can build stuff from scratch. um, And then you have those that can tweak and customize, but they have to have something that's already created. So you can apply the 80-20 rule to that where 80% of the way there, they can go and customize the 20% of it to get the outcome and the end result they're looking for and support it too. And I see that as the future of uh, of DevSecOps in general is you're still going to need the folks that are going to be able to create the base automation content that you're going to use. Um, and then you're going to have the other folks that can consume it. But you have to think about this more about across, and I think you brought this up earlier, Jim, the full spectrum of technical talent to ensure that you can cater to both sides of that. So you probably also heard, you know, the shift left and the, shift right uh, out there. And I look at it as like, you need to shift left for sure to try to get as close to the beginning of the creation of whatever you're trying to build through a DevSecOps pipeline process. But you need to also be able to take that and shift it right in more of a consumable type approach, where it's more low code, no code. So you have to have high code and low code, no code and be able to balance both of those um, uh, on both sides of that because just shifting left is not the answer just shifting right where I abstract everything and make it super simplistic, you need to be able to do both. Uh, And that's, you know, that's at least that's how I think about it.
1: Okay, I'm going to take the bait. The shifting left, because I, I think we don't want to leave anybody in the dust. My understanding is shifting left has to do with we're moving to an agile software development process. Now we're testing... Earlier, we're not doing that waterfall methodology where we're going to build a product and then, oh, guess what? We're going to start testing it. It's this continuous um, integration development process where we're testing as we're going. So what we're talking about really is the automated testing, script-based testing of applications that are running all the time. Okay. So obviously, I'm, I'm getting to my yeah. point of ignorance Talk no. to us about shift left.
2: Yeah, it's fine. I, it's it's the concept of shift left is trying to incorporate security as close to the beginning of the dev uh, process, so that you can have you know uh, scanning and remediation happening as, as 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 close to the beginning of the pipeline process as possible uh, when you're releasing software uh, conceptually. Now, in cybersecurity, the whole reason this whole shift left thing came to be is because of the fact that most of the cybersecurity products out there were being used outside of the development process. So now it's the concept of trying to introduce that into there. Now if we take this and move this forward to the concept of IT as code, it's not anymore about being a part of just the dev process even though I'm taking the same approach in how I create and release my solutions now that they're all software defined, but I'm also thinking about how I can build this from code from the very beginning, but then package it up in a consumable format where you have to now shift right because it needs to be in a format that other folks that aren't just the developers or DevOps engineers can actually consume. So there's a, there and there's a debate going on on this, but I, I, I truly believe it's a shift left first <laughs> and then shift right. And again, it's not just about app development. It's now about thinking about everything holistically from a technology standpoint in your organization that may or may not uh, be about just application development. And there's a lot of organizations that aren't developing applications at all, right? But they need to take the same approach. Now they're building solutions because if I'm no longer rack and st- or st- uh, rack and stacking uh, uh, infrastructure in my data center, or I'm now using the cloud. That's one great use case where this becomes a major issue at scale. And you have to now start thinking about how do I build things from infrastructure code? How do I set up guardrails and policies around that? And then how do I tie in the other building blocks to that too? Because I may want to be able to assess the infrastructure I created against CIS benchmarks. I may want to be able to uh, remediate it. I may want to incorporate integrations to be able to pop that data into my ticketing system or CMDB or whatever it may be. And so again, thinking about this more uh, holistically, and then how do I um, you know, tie in the other building blocks here too? Because I may want to incorporate uh, using a particular IAM solution across the board for every single building block that I create or multiple different IAM solutions depending on the organization and who supports different implementations of different products that are being used in the organization. So what is the x-axis
0: from your definition of shifting left? Because the way that I'm picturing it is, all the way on the left is the developer, whoever is creating the thing. And then all the way on the right is the consumer or the customer of whatever that thing will eventually be. And everything in the middle is all the stuff that happens, and all the people and parts that contribute to getting it all the way to the right. And he talked earlier about, you know, shift, not necessarily shifting right, but, you know, spreading out, for example, the security, um, responsibilities across the spectrum is that am, am i thinking about that correctly in the context of kind of what you were looking at or am i off
2: i think everyone needs to be thinking about security but i do still think it's on the, the cyber security team and any ancillary teams uh, in the organization to be able to long term still support that i think the problem though is has lived in you know if i decide i'm going to need to go say cloud native and i'm going to deploy Kubernetes clusters usually that's on the plate of the the DevOps team, not the security team. And then the security team is either brought in after the fact, or the DevOps team has to pick up on the security side. And so my thought, in my opinion on this, is that if you build things and building blocks that each team has to maintain, then being able to bring them all together, um, then the security team still is able to manage the risk in the organization and support the different. Uh, cybersecurity products they have to support, but being able to work in conjunction with the dev or the DevOps team, and then also the ops team who's going to have to support any of the stuff once it goes into production and other systems in their organization. Um, that may not be directly tied to cybersecurity, but it's imperative that they're, you're able to utilize those systems in conjunction with the security products in the organization. Um, but I don't, or I'm also against the thought process that. Uh, developers are now going to become the uh, security experts and now, are the DevOps engineers. And you're going to put this on their plate. Um, and so you, you probably heard talk out there about, oh, well, we can build these DevOps, DevSecOps teams. If you ever try to hire a DevOps engineer, that is very difficult. If you ever try to hire a DevSecOps engineer, that's like trying to find a rainbow color, uh, rainbow painted unicorn out there in the wild, right? Like it's just not, it's not uh, in reach to be able to think that you can add a whole nother domain. To somebody that already ha- that has the expertise around two different domains already, uh, Dev and Ops. For
1: so I did did not hear you um, use the word containerization, but I often hear DevSecOps. You know, link to things like Docker, and a lot of times that's when you know I'm engaging with the conversation with the client is they've got Docker, they're doing a lot of DevSecOps work. Uh, how big is containerization in the world of DevSecOps? Is it usually the driver uh, or is it just a part of the puzzle?
2: That's a great question. So there's a school of thought out there that that DevSecOps is purely driven around, to your point, uh, containers are really you know, cloud-native technologies like Kubernetes. Um, and it's interesting because I uh, – uh, last year, we ended up engaging with uh, Platform One, which is the Air Force's DevSecOps initiative. So we won a cyber small business innovation research contract uh, with uh, Platform One around their initiative. What I found, though, is kind of working through this is there's really the legacy side of systems that you have to support that you should still be able to apply DevSecOps principles, but it's not directly tied to cloud native or you know c- containerization. And then there's the other side where it's like it may or may not make sense for the organization to go that way. I don't think that DevSecOps and containerization are mutually exclusive. I think that the principles and the approach to DevSecOps should be able to be applied to traditional uh, infrastructure use cases that you can apply to like network automation or configuration management uh, for devices that may or may not be physical. And then also thinking about how you're applying those same principles to you know, building Kubernetes clusters and applying uh, you know security controls to those. So it's it's from my my perspective, DevSecOps is a is is the approach and how you're trying to uh, modernize. But being able to not just put it into just solely containers or containerization, I think is a, is a way to think about it in organizations. And um, there's all kinds of different use cases that I have uh, I, I've worked with customers on that are using it for that are, again aren't what you see out there as traditional, pure uh, uh, Kubernetes or containerization use cases.
1: You know, I think of DevSecOps, probably the the closest parallel in the IAM world, the traditional IAM world for me, is privilege access management, or you've got this group of highly technical users and you're quote unquote going to do something to them. You're going to change the way they work by implementing some technology that sits between them and what they have to do for their job. And so I think there's probably a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. I'm wondering, you know, you've probably seen both, but, you know, you and you've implemented implemented a DevSecOps program yourself. Kind of what's the right way to do that? And if you could back with any real world example, I think that would be interesting.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think. From my, my perspective, when you're thinking about how organizations are building out, uh, say, a DevSecOps program, the keys to thinking about that and, and to your point about, like, privileged access management or different products that you're trying to incorporate into the mix is who supports these different products? At what level are they at technically to support anything net new? Um, and there's some examples in the IAM space from different vendors that um, may, have, you know, may have existed for a long time. So they've been catering primarily to the cybersecurity teams. And now other products that are coming out there are catering more to the developer side of different teams. And so you really have to think about how these are um, packaged up in used, and then what else they're supporting in conjunction with it. Because um, a lot of times it'll be like, um, and HashiCorp's a good example of this, so I'll, I'll bring them up around more of the developer DevOps uh, type of approach for how those pro- who, who uses those products, but the security team has to support, say, the Vault uh, <laughs> implementation. Um, and then uh, how do you incorporate those into the next piece, which is going to be, all right, now that I can pull uh, secrets or credentials I, and, and get authorization, to then go create say infrastructure as code, um, who is supporting that? And I think that the ability to get cybersecurity to be involved in that and be able to support that as you're building out your DevSecOps program um, is imperative. And also the, to go back to my prior point, the upskilling part, because a lot of times this is completely um, outside of the scope of what uh, cybersecurity practitioners know and understand. And so it's net new skills that have to be learned um, to be a part of this. Um, so maybe I need to learn how I can pull secrets programmatically from Vault and I need to know how I can build some as code, say in Terraform, any of the cloud native templates um, and, and thinking about it again, back to the whole IT is code conversation. How does that get incorporated into the, uh, the, the outcomes that organization is trying to drive through, whether they're pushing to go to the public cloud or uh, any sort of other initiatives that are going to help them accelerate uh, what they're trying to do. And I think that's a that's a huge piece of um, the, uh, I hate to use this term, but of digital transformation, which is a completely loaded term. But <laughs> it's, it's part of that process that organizations are trying to go through that they can basically modernize um, is really what the root of that is. Um, and that requires different teams to be a part of that. And also, again, the upscaling piece too, so that the full spectrum of technical talent in the organization can be a part of the DevSecOps program that you build inside your organization.
1: Yeah, my perspective on it is that if I'm the, in the information security office, I don't need to run the HachiCorp or the, um, the Vault or whatever technology is necessarily backing up. I don't necessarily need my folks to do the administration work. What I want to make sure of is that The proper controls are in place. The proper auditing is in place. And, you know, what I prefer to see is some leadership from that development side coming to the information security office to say, hey, we've got a process here where we're um, managing identity and access and we want to make sure that we're in alignment, that, you, you know, we have the proper controls in place. I, I think the same thing for privileged access management. It shouldn't have to be that the IAM team comes and says, hey, we need to take over your process. It should be that the, the engineering team says, hey, we're managing all these servers. We need to make sure that we have proper controls and auditing in place. Um, so I think that, That would be ideal. I don't know that that's always going to happen, but I do think it needs to be a partnership. I don't think um, some kind of antagonistic process where, you know, from a from a app dev team or from an infrastructure team, where it's like, oh, you guys just want to come and like, you know, take over this process and you're going to make my life suck.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think there's two ways to think about it too from that perspective. Uh, and this goes to some of the work that I've been doing with some some large SIs as well as system integrators around, there's the, to your point, there's like the support of the underlying infrastructure and the configuration of the different IAM products that you have to support, which a lot of organizations are trying to figure out how they can do, um, you know, in a much more uh, modern, sophisticated way, uh, leveraging kind of DevSecOps approach to building it around infrastructure as code and, and so on. Then there's the other side of it, to your point, which is the, how do I then use those products in the DevSecOps pipelining process where I'm trying to build these more modern solutions? And so that is also the other approach. And I think that it does, to your point, require a, a, uh, a relationship uh, that's not not confrontational between uh, development and, and DevOps or whoever's managing that side of it, and the cybersecurity team who's going to have to support um, the different products that are now being used inside of that process too. And not everything's going to be, you know, to my example, like using HashiCorp, you know, your dev team and DevOps team may be using it, but you may have other IM, you're most likely have other IM products in your organization. And so you have to think about how do I incorporate those into because I may have two or three or four different Uh, products inside my organization. So I have to think about how each one of those is used and can I have those as essentially the building blocks I mentioned earlier as a part of that process where I can swap one out for another if another team is using and supporting it um, and I'm not just beholden to the devs or the DevOps team because now they're forcing us to have to use this this net new product. I think longer term strategy is can you package up the integration automation around these IAM products in a consumable way that you can have other teams using it without them having to know the inner workings To say like how vault works. It's just like, Oh, I just need to fill in these a uh, few inputs and I can run this. And now I get the end results. What I'm looking for, I can go grab that uh, secret and use it in my process. Right. And so thinking about it much more uh, around the, the consumption piece is is critical. And how folks can can use this type of stuff. You know, we've been talking an a lot about DevSecOps
0: in the context. I think of it kind of already existing, but what happens if um, it doesn't exist? How do you insert or create a culture of DevSecOps? Because it, it it seems to me like it's very much a culture and a mindset, unless on um, the actual technology portion of it. Sure, the technology is an enabler, but if There is, if there's no DevSecOps today, how do I start one? How do I insert myself into that process?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So you really need to look at how you're doing work today in your organization and who has responsibilities for the different work. And you may have a super mature DevOps practice. You may have, you you may not doing any DevOps in your organization. Um, So conceptually from a principle standpoint, that would be the first thing is how do I get things in place to be able to, um, to even build what I would consider a, a, a more of a DevOps style practice. And some of that stuff is like continuous feedback loops between teams. So you can be more collaborative and you know what either team, you know what different teams are doing. Then also thinking about it from a uh, process standpoint. So feedback's great, but you need to have a semblance on the understanding of what not just what other teams are doing, but how you can incorporate more of the agile process into what you're trying to create and continuously um, update and, and monitor uh, as well, which is super critical. And then from a longer term strategy, it's being able to um, get a semblance on, again, around the uh the solution building side in the organization because you need to apply those principles to what you're basically trying to create from a solution standpoint and then being able to iterate quickly on that and having each of the teams involved from a collaboration standpoint. And uh, technology is critical to this, but also is equally critical is having the processes and program in place because if you don't have an understanding on, on what you need to do to build the practice or the program, you're not going to have an understanding about how to even apply technology that could help you uh, to, to start redefining this in your organization.
1: Mike, I'm going to ask you to put your, your future thinking cap on. So Jeff and I did a live stream today and someone asked us about quantum computing and how it would impact password policies and password lists. And, um, you know, there's like these major trends that are happening um, around us. Things like the cloud, which you know, can't say is the new trend anymore. Uh, but I'm wondering, what are some some trends or some things that you see in the future that that you get excited about? What's going to change in the DevSecOps landscape uh, and make it better?
2: That's so. Uh, I don't know if I'll, I'll get into quantum computing and how we leap from that from DevSecOps, but I do think. Uh, uh, AI, uh, ML, and it's funny because uh, when I was in school, I, I took I took a an AI, ML class, and I learned uh, firsthand of the, the fact that um, what we think about AI, it's very rudimentary. Um, a lot of it's brute force uh, uh, type algorithms, and I do see though that if you start taking the approach on DevSecOps, the next kind of approach to it is now how can i apply any of the to the any of the data that i'm now building from what i'm doing to make better predictions on what users want to do or longer term even have uh the the robots (laughs) be able to go do stuff with it which i know in a lot of organizations uh, uh is terrifying but at the same time i think longer term we'll see more and more Um, intelligent automation where we're actually leveraging uh, large data sets around machine learning and then being able to apply more of an AI approach, thinking about, um, you know, uh, can I, can I now have these, can I now have a machine go do these things that I'm already automating, have machines do it, but I'm controlling what it does to actually be able to make decisions off of the data that I, I build off of that. So that, that's, that's where I see the next trend. Um, and maybe on the next podcast, we'll talk about uh, quantum computing, you know, a year or two out, because um, I may be more applicable at that point in time. <laughs> I
0: got a quick question for you. You've been great with your time. I know we've only got a couple of minutes left here, but, I, you know, I'm a Star Trek guy. The Borg, are they an AI?
2: Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, because they're a dithering between machine and AI. Uh, 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 you know, a human, or you know, human, or like a rather. cyborg, yeah, yeah, a, cy- a cyborg of sorts. Um, I don't think the Borg themselves are. I do think that the control of the Borg is driven by um, AI. But it's 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 conceptually, if you think about it from a collective standpoint, it would be um, uh, possible uh, to 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 be AI. But I. I yeah, it's, that's that's a good question. I, I think I'm on the fence on that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd throw you on the spot there. So let's wrap up with something in the Star Trek uh, universe. Who is your favorite Star Trek captain or officer?
2: So I have I have two, uh, one uh, uh, human and one uh, uh, synthetic. <laughs> uh, so uh, Captain Picard for sure from Next Generation um he by far is is my favorite captain of all time across all all star trek and then um uh data so and i say data not data because of my love for the next generation and and, uh data is 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 also right there up there with um captain picard so I, i i like both of them equally iconic characters for sure jim
0: about yourself who's your favorite star trekker
1: I'm not going to have an original answer here, but Picard's my favorite. I mean, I just think that guy was so cool.
0: Yeah, I don't know what it is about him, but like he totally nailed that role for sure. You know, you can do hashtag hashtag, uh, my captain or you know whatever you want to do it for Picard for sure. I'm on that one. Uh, You know, I'm I'm old school, but I like Spock. I mean, there's something about the logic the lack of emotion, <laughs> things like that, you know, not, not sort of tainting the decision-making sometimes to a detriment for sure. But yeah, I always thought it was a fascinating, um, you know, not only character, but role, right. To be able to kind of show that. And he, he kind of saw it go over with data trying to figure out, there are several episodes of him trying to figure out the human experience and emotion and things like that, which was always a hoot, you know, going from, the cold, not to say cold, but the robot, to him, all of a sudden experiencing happiness or sadness or things like that, and taking it to the extremes. So, I guess Spock would be mine for sure.
1: Now, was I think Spock over I... the captain, or was he? Or you? Was the question? Who's your favorite character?
0: Uh, it was uh, captain or officer, and Spock was definitely an officer. Although he did take command at certain times, based on what was happening,
2: um, you know, at the time with with Kirk. I'm surprised nobody brought up Deanna Troy, or uh, <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I thought it was only the, the, the lead captain.
1: Or, yeah. Yeah, Deanna was definitely. Yeah. I changed my vote. <laughs>
2: yeah, and uh, not, not for a plug for the new show Picard, but a lot of them are back on there, so it's interesting to see them acting, uh, uh, you know, decades into the future on uh, uh, from the next generation. But yeah, it's it's uh, exciting stuff out there on on all fronts. Uh, uh, Star Trek. So, yeah.
0: They boldly went where they are already before, I guess, would be the way to put that one. <laughs> um, Mike, you've been super cool with your time. I want to start to get things wrapped up here. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation today. I, I learned a lot sort of from that DevSecOps mindset. What is something that people who are listening here just to this conversation just now should be taking away uh, from from what we talked about?
2: The DevSecOps uh, takes time and effort to build you know, a, a program in your organization, if you're coming at it from the cybersecurity practitioner side. Think about how you can start upskilling yourself. I kind of I equate that to, you know, you don't need to become a software engineer, but you should know computer science fundamentals because the shift is happening. And you, you at least want to have the baseline of an understanding of how things are done and accomplished as everything becomes, everything is code or IT is code. And uh, it's I, I'm I'm super excited to see where the market goes with around this. Um, it's uh, I think we're very very forefront of this. Even though you've heard DevSecOps for uh, you know years now, I think we're getting to the point where it's starting to truly accelerate. But it's one of the the basis of DevSecOps is change, and that's very difficult for any organization. Uh, and so that's a I think the driving factor is the industry shifting faster. So fast that uh, organizations have to uh, adapt and change, and, and I like to say with DevSecOps, using a, a Star Trek uh, uh, phrase, uh, "Resistance is futile." So pre- <laughs> prepare to be assi- to be assimilated.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jim, how about yourself? Final thoughts for for this episode? Oh,
1: that was so good. Yeah. That was so good. Um, yeah, my, I think you know, I kind of come from the. Um, I am program manager point of view, and think about this as it's got to be a partnership. Don't go in and try and take things over, you know, quote unquote, insert yourself. Understand from, you know, your users, your developers, and your um, infrastructure team, what are their needs, what are their concerns, and you let them know. Here are our, our needs from a infosec standpoint. I think when that gets on the table, then you can start to solution around what those needs are. And you can, you know, if you pursue this as kind of a partnership, uh, all parties leading to uh, try to make sure that all the needs are taken care of, that's the right approach. That's what i would say.
0: Yeah. Collaboration and partnership is exactly what I was thinking too. Uh, No one's an expert in everything. you know, be a good partner, I guess, to the rest of the business, whichever side you fall on. Um, okay. I think that'll do it for this week. Um, I will have in our show notes, um, Mike's uh, LinkedIn. Hopefully you're cool with that and connecting with people out there. Uh, and also a link to Sophos. Hopefully I pronounced it correctly that time. Uh, so you can That's learn great. more about what's what's happening there. Good. Okay, cool. Um, and, you know, obviously you can check us on the web, uh, identityatthecenter.com. We're on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. You can check out our live streams, which, again, we're trying to do those weekly, uh, slowly growing it, slowly figuring it out, but uh, having interesting conversations there as well. You can find us on YouTube at IDAC.live. And, uh, yeah, with that, we'll go ahead and leave it. Mike, you thanks so much for your time. Jim, thanks for your time. And uh, we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for having me, guys. for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.